When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. With each following incident, the support for free speech gets less and less. I mean, where is the Just We Salmon movement, right? Where's the demonstrations in New York or Paris or London about that? Nowhere. So the support for free speech gets weaker. The cowardice becomes more obvious with every one of these incidents. And I think that is a bigger and bigger and brighter and brighter green light to anybody who wants to have a go. If you say, oh, as all the critics of free speech do today, words are violence, then, you know, using violence against words becomes an entirely legitimate response in some people's minds. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Mick Hume. Mick, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Brendan. Uh, Pleasure. And I've wanted you on for a long time, and it's grimly timely to have you on now, given uh, what's happened over the past few days. Um, I want to talk to you about the Rushdie affair and the Rushdie attack and about an issue that you've been writing on for decades now, which is freedom of speech and the right to offend, which you've been writing about in Spite and before that in Living Marxism, numerous other publications, and of course in your books on freedom of speech, firstly on freedom of the press, and then your book Trigger Warning, Is the Fear of Being Offensive Killing Free Speech, which Salman Rushdie himself described as an incredibly important defense of freedom of speech. So there's a lot for us to dig into, I think, on this uh, grim development in in the Rushdie affair. But I want to start off by asking you what you thought when you heard the news last Friday that Rushdie had been stabbed in New York State. Had you thought, like many of us, and like Rushdie himself, that the fatwa had become a bit of a relic, kind of a bit for show on Iran's part, and therefore this horrible attack seemed to come slightly out of the blue? It did, Brendan. I, th- I suppose what I thought was uh, it was a terrible shock. But when you thought about it, not such a great surprise. Yeah. Because although the fatwa, as you say, was over 30 years old, and even the Iranian regime had kind of semi-disowned it uh, more recently, and Rushdie had turned up at that event without security, mm. which was uh, would have been unheard of, unthought of, um, 10 or 20 years ago for him. Um, at the same time, we have seen the intensifying war on free speech in the West. Uh, The Charlie Hebdo massacre, um, the murder of the French teacher in the street, uh, even in this country, the Batley Grammar School teacher forced into hiding for showing his class drawings of Muhammad. So we we have this kind of um, pincer movement against free speech, I think you've described it as, where on the one hand you have uh, the Islamist extremists who want to kill free speech, literally, uh, and on the other side, um, the kind of woke uh, culture war- warriors who want to cancel it and who have demonstrated such a cowardly lack of defensive free speech in response to these Islamist attacks that it's a kind of invitation to any nutter who wants to have a go at Rushdie. Uh, it was an open invitation. I think I've made the point for, for years, Brendan, especially since the um, Charlie Hebdo attack, that really these Islamists attacking 
people for offending the Prophet or Allah in the West are really should be understood not only as the kind of representatives of an old Eastern religion, but also as the kind of armed militant wing of a very modern Western movement, which says that offensive speech uh, has no right to be expressed and should be rubbed out one way or another. So terrible shock. But when you think about it in the context of the free speech war in the West, it shouldn't have been such a terrible surprise. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just on that unholy marriage between holy warriors on one side and the cancel culture mob on the other, yeah. uh, both of whom are driven by uh, the same instinct in different ways, which is to crush that which offends them. Uh, I want to trace with you how that comes about and uh, its historical origin. So if we go back to 1988 and 1989, uh, when the sat Satanic Verses was first published and then the fatwa was issued in 89, um, I, I, want, I wanted to ask you what the atmosphere was like by, back then, because when I read some of the coverage of uh, the response to the fatwa, even now, I'm still shocked when I read it. it. You have liberals who were failing to stand with Salman Rushdie and actually called him a troublemaker and suggested that he was bringing all this trouble on himself. Conservative politicians were also fairly quick to write him off as a bit of a problem. Uh, and you know, Jimmy Carter infamously wrote a piece in the US, I think for the New York Times, yeah. uh, basically saying uh, Rushdie is offensive and, and, and causing this all this trouble. Um, that was fairly widespread at the time, wasn't it, back then? And it, do you think that indicated very early on the kind of thing you've just talked about, which is that there was already in those in that early period uh, a merging together of the intolerance of Islamists on one side and liberals on the other? Most definitely, Brendan. It was an absolutely key moment in starkly illustrating that divide between those who were and weren't prepared to stand up for free speech in the West. Not just a divide between the East or Islam in the West, but the divide within the West yeah. between um, those who were and weren't prepared to stand up for free speech. It really brought that to the surface in the most shocking kind of way. It was the first time that, for me, that I really realised just how shallow and how thin is the support for free speech mm -hmm. in the West, especially in the upper echelons of, of Western society, how they're all prepared to pay lip service to it. But actually, when it came to it, um, when there were literally a mob on the street burning books in British cities, um, people shied away from it, wanted to bury the issue, didn't want to talk about it, wanted to say, yes, we agree with you, this book has gone too far, you know, we believe in freedom of speech, freedom of the press, but, mm -hmm. and the buts get bigger and bigger, um, this has gone too far, this is offensive, we completely understand why people are very upset. Even the, the Thatcher government, which actually extended the police protection to Russia rather reluctantly, both Thatcher and uh, Sir Geoffrey Howe, I think was her foreign secretary at the time, made the point that the book was offensive yeah. to Islam and was overstepping the mark. And they rather reluctantly kind of protected Rushdie. And the left were just terrified at the prospect of appearing racist or, uh, I mean, I don't think Islamophobic had become a, um, a popular phrase then, but it, w it would be the modern, modern equivalent of that. Didn't want to appear racist in response to it. And so just tried to pretend it would go away and to say, we completely appreciate and understand how upset you are, how hurt your feelings are. So that divide between those who were and weren't prepared to stand up for freedom of speech and how few were the people actually on the liberal and left-wing side of that division who were prepared to take an, uh, an ardent stand for freedom of speech was starkly illustrated. And it brought home to me and many other people just how important the battle for free speech was going to be, which we've seen 
become more and more important over the past 30 odd years. And I think the 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 vision of the the kind of fatwa and and the novel itself and the response to the novel as an explosive moment in Western politics and Western culture is really important. And if you think about the time that it came out, right at the end of the Cold War, yeah. right when there was a shift in global politics as well as uh, uh, domestically too, it really became a, a flashpoint in so many of those different issues and questions. And another way that happened, you mentioned there the mobs burning the book. And you look back on photographs of some of those, they are genuinely shocking. Uh, you know, the, the mob in Bradford, for example, uh, yeah. mainly Muslim men who were quite gleefully burning the book and damning it as an act of blasphemy. And that was a turning point too, wasn't it? In terms of, uh, firstly, the moment at which it happens, which is after decades of uh, the left yeah. failing and changing in different ways. And you have this explosive moment where people seem to embrace a far more regressive identitarian form of politics, a religious form of politics, yeah. through which to express their anger or their intolerance or whatever else it might be. But that was a shift too, wasn't it? it towards the new politics of victimhood, the politics of offence taking, and people defining themselves much more through identity rather than anything else. Completely. And I think, you know, you mentioned the defeat of the left, and that's really what happened, that the left and the anti-racist movement had been defeated and the, and the vacuum was kind of filled by this new Muslim identity, Islamic identity politics. This wasn't really to do with an upsurge of religious belief so much as a filling of a gap for people who wanted something to, to believe in. And as you say, they, they became defined, defined by the idea of victim victimhood, by the idea of um, being offended, by the idea of having to protect your sensibilities. And so that Islamization of those youth fitted in very, very clearly with the identity politics that was that was coming to dominate left wing politics in in the in Britain and the West. It was kind of British illustration of a, of a, of a global trend. I was the editor of Living Marxism, as you mentioned uh, at the mm. time, which, uh, to remind our uh, younger viewers, uh, listeners, was um, a magazine uh, published by the Revolutionary Communist Party, both deceased. Um, we relaunched it as LM Magazine, which uh, you and I worked on. Brendan, and then when we lost LM Magazine, when it closed after a libel case, you and I and a few other people launched Spike. So just to understand, but this is a kind of antecedent of where we are now. And our response to the Rushdie affair in, in Living Marxism, I just looked it up this week, was we published a, an editorial in April 1989 called Defend the Right to be Offensive, which I think is an absolutely key marker in terms, maybe even the first time that expression was actually used, mm. certainly by me, but probably perhaps anywhere in, in, in Britain, defending the right to be offensive, defend the right to blaspheme, defend the right to question everything, to go against orthodoxies, to stand up for freedom of speech and thought, even for those ideas that you disagree with. I think that was a crucial marker for us as well, laying down the line to saying, we are going to fight the free speech wars, we are going to defend the right to be offensive. Uh, and I think that we've been proved right, that that's been that absolute crucial issue. That's the freedom on which all other freedoms depend, and it's been proved to be the crucial issue over the past three decades. How Woke Won, the new spiked book by Joanna Williams, is out now. It is all about the woke takeover of our institutions and how we as ordinary people can fight back. I cannot recommend it enough. Make sure you order your copy now. You can get it on Amazon or go to spiked-online.com slash shop. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. You mentioned there blasphemy, and I want to talk to you a little bit about blasphemy, which you've written about on Spiked, the the central importance of the right to blaspheme to the broader project of uh, expanding freedom of speech. Yep. Uh, historically, it was often the the struggle for the right to be a heretic or the right to hold heretical beliefs and to blaspheme against certain gods or prophets that really propelled society forward in terms of freedom. Um, but the first thing I want to ask you about is subsequent to um, the fatwa and, and the response in the West, as well as in Iran and, and India and Pakistan to, to Rushdie's novel, um, what happened in the West is that I think we witnessed the secularization of blasphemy. So right. it's quite soon after the fatwa that we do start hearing discussions about Islamophobia. As you say, it wasn't instantly in 88 or 89, but certainly it was in 1997 that the Running Me Trust first put forward one of the most important definitions of Islamophobia, which included things like um, presuming that Western values are superior to the values of Islamic countries. And so it was all, it was, it included not just what everyone would recognize as racist comments about Muslim communities, but also moral judgments, political speech, political criticism, and so on. So uh, through that process, through, wasn't that one of the most striking things that shortly after the fatwa, shortly after this man was singled out by a tyrannical regime? as deserving of death for blaspheming against Islam, we institutionalized our own version of it, only we called it Islamophobia. Absolutely extraordinary. And, you know, to think that at that time, everyone would say, oh, blasphemy, that's that's all old hat uh, in Britain. Last prosecution for blasphemy in Britain, 1977, mm-hmm. private prosecution by Mary Whitehouse, the old uh, moral campaigner, crusader, who took gay news to court uh, and won a, a, a private blasphemy prosecution against them for publishing a poet in which a, a Roman centurion imagines having uh, gay sex with dead Jesus, uh, who's also gay. And that's kind of just seemed like, you know, history. And indeed, by 2008, when Tony Blair and the New Labour came in, they actually abolished the, the blasphemy laws. But if you say the striking thing was that was very little to celebrate about that, although it was a necessary step, because they were replacing it at the same time with these kind of secular blasphemy laws, hate speech laws, which defined that any Thing that could be called a phobia, uh, of which Islamophobia became one of the central marks, was the secular modern equivalent of blasphemy, saying what couldn't be said and should be punished, perhaps not by death, but certainly by being silenced and quite possibly by being locked up. So we have a completely secularized uh, the blasphemy laws in this country, and they're very and this is true across the West. The, you'll find blasphemy laws now in basically the Muslim world across the Western world, there are very few old-fashioned blasphemy laws, but there are almost all societies have hate speech laws. Some of them in Europe much harder than ours, which define something like uh, anything that, that anything that be called denial is now the um, uh, you know whether it's genocide denial or climate change denial. That is a modern yeah. equivalent of, of blasphemy. Uh, anything that's hate speech that is a um, modern equivalent of heresy. Things that cannot be said must be silenced and punished. So, very powerful secular blasphemy laws in this country, which are actually one of the major barriers to free speech. Uh, now, so we shouldn't imagine for a moment that this is some kind of east-west divide. 
you know, that it's only in, in Pakistan or the Middle East that people get punished for, for blasphemy. We have our own secular blasphemy laws, and they're very powerful um, um, restrictions on freedom of speech here. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen people be suspended or sacked from their jobs for exactly. making fun of Islam. And uh, you mentioned earlier the Batley Grammar School teacher who... Who talks about the Batley Grammar School teacher, yeah. right? Everyone says, oh, no, we have free speech. Us. Really? Well, who's defending the Batley Grammar School teacher who's still in hiding a year later for showing a cartoon to yeah. a class full of school kids? It is extraordinary. And uh, I think uh, I wanted to touch on a point you made earlier in relation precisely to this question, which is the green light that is sent when our society fails to stand up for people's right to speak freely. Yeah. So if we take the Batley Grammar example, so as you say, this school teacher um, is, as far as we know, still in hiding, keeping his head down, apparently had to move out of his home with his young family, all because he showed some images of Muhammad in a classroom discussion on blasphemy and freedom of speech and offence. Um, and an intolerant mob gathered outside the school and kicked up a storm and demanded his sacking. Isn't the liberal cowardice central to all of this? Because if you look at the mob that gathered outside the school, firstly, they were doing what you would expect them to do, right? This is what Islamists do. They shout and they scream and they don't like it when people offend their religious beliefs. Um, they were fairly small in number, even though I'm sure their, their threat was very serious. Um, but it was the other institutions that were failing to do what they should be doing. So the teaching unions didn't stand by this teacher. The political class didn't say very much. Even the supposedly liberal commentariat didn't put its neck, head above the parapet to say, look, we have to rally around this guy. So it, how central do you think that cowardice is to events like this and to emboldening these intolerant elements in society? It's completely central, Brendan, because in all of these instances, we are only talking about small numbers, relatively small numbers of, of extremists. You know, the Muslim community in Britain, the vast majority of them are not supporters yeah. of stabbing Salman Rushdie in the neck. Mm. Right? We're talking about very small numbers of, of um, extremists, in, Islamist extremists, in the same way that the trans activists who pursue J.K. Rowling, who strikingly was caught up in the in the Rushdie affair this week, or death threat to her for supporting him entirely timely, in the same way that they are a very small minority. Mm. They only have any influence because of the absolute cowardice and collapse of the establishment and the, and the liberal institutions in Britain and the West. That's what gives them their opportunity to have such influence, to, to have such a voice. If we were standing up for our values, freedom of speech, democracy, tolerance, they would be on the fringe, you know, shouting at Speaker's Corner at Hyde Park rather than in the centre of our political and, uh, and and cultural life, which we've allowed them to become. And what's really striking about this is that every time one of these incidents happens, it seems to me, the response gets worse and worse, gets weaker and weaker. You know, if you think of Charlie Hebdo, 2015, the massacre of um, the journalist, cartoonists and others at the offices of that satirical magazine in Paris, there was this huge outpouring of support for Charlie Hebdo, the, the Je suis Charlie movement that went across Europe and, and the world in terms of demonstrations and so on. And we pointed out at the time, and in my book, Trigger Warning, that you mentioned, I, I wrote a chapter about it, actually how thin that support for it was and how quickly the backlash started. And people started saying, yes, but yeah. Charlie Hebdo did go too far. Rush himself got in, involved in a very famous incident in that because American Pen, the writer's organization, after the Charlie Hebdo uh, massacre, they organized a special event uh, in kind of memory of the fallen and to support them. 
several really leading American writers refused to attend, boycotted it, and announced they wouldn't do so because Charlie Hebdo was a racist, Islamophobic publication. And Rushdie was absolutely apoplectically furious about that and put out a great statement about how we're supposed to be, a, he was an ex-president of American Penn, and said, we're supposed to be a freedom of expression organisation. If you believe in free speech, you've got to believe in free speech ideas you disagree with. That's the whole central tenet of, of, of the principle of free speech. So even that support for Charlie Hebdo was actually far more superficial than, than, than we were led to believe at the time within the liberal establishment. This time, with, with each following incident, the support for free speech gets less and less. I mean, where is the Just We Salmon yeah. movement, right? Where's the yeah. demonstrations in New York or Paris about or, or London about that? Nowhere. So the support for free speech gets weaker. The cowardice becomes more obvious with every one of these incidents. And I think that is a bigger and bigger and brighter and brighter green light to anybody who wants to have a go. If you say, oh, as the all the critics of free speech do today, words are violence, then, you know, using violence against words becomes an entirely legitimate response in some people's minds. I think that's so true about the the lack of a an angry, clear, principled response to what happened to Salman Rushdie. And I've noticed that over the past few days, you think to yourself, hold on, is this already fading from exactly the kind of public, you know, it's still in the news. People want to know how he's doing, when he's going to be out of hospital, of course. But it, as in terms of being a, a, a prominent public concern, I, I mean, it's gone. There's going to be a reading of some of his works in New York, I think. But aside from that, I've not seen anything at all, which is really startling. And I wanted to ask you about one of the ideological justifications that are given for this failure of people to stand with um, supposed heretics and others who exercise their free free speech, especially in relation to issues to do with Islam. So you mentioned there Charlie Hebdo and the shocking response that came from sections of the Western literati, so those um, incredibly prominent novelists who complained about the Penn Award for Charlie Hebdo. And uh, what what was very striking about what they said is that Charlie Hebdo, the problem with Charlie Hebdo is that it too often mocked a section of the French population that is already marginalized, embattled, and victimized. So the idea was Charlie Hebdo was punching down. It was pun- That's the phrase that is used. And you see that all the time. You know, Navarra Media, the kind of lefty Corbynista media outlet here in the UK, wrote a piece in which it said, you know, Charlie Hebdo's contributors are all white middle class, mostly male, and therefore they have a certain privilege uh, vis-a-vis the Muslim population. This is after 10 of them had been slaughtered in their offices, which is a very strange form of privilege, I think. Um, And then you had the despicable Islamic Human Rights Commission, which gave um, Charlie Hebdo the Islamophobe of the Year Award just a few weeks after they were killed in their offices, which is just a, a new low in terms of that kind of identitarian politics. But the justification that's often used is the one about punching down. Mm. Uh, now, in relation to Charlie Hebdo, that simply gets it wrong. Charlie Hebdo punches everywhere, up, down, left, right, all religions, all political. So so they're just wrong about French satire and Charlie Hebdo satire in particular. But what do you make of that term, this notion that if you criticise Islam, you're hurting a vulnerable community, or if you criticise any aspect of transgenderism, you're hurting a marginalized community it is often that weaponization of supposed vulnerability yeah. isn't it that's used against freedom of, of speech absolutely well i mean there's lots of ways of looking at that but without getting into specifics of any of those issues to do with those uh, sections of the community there's a major principle at stake in this which is that you either have free speech or you don't have free yeah. speech 
is it's an indivisible liberty. And you can't say you can have free speech if you agree with me. That's not free speech. That's, you know, Joseph Stalin would have entirely supported free speech on that, on, on, on that basis. You, you either support free speech or you don't. And as you know, as well as I do, Brendan, it's been as free speech campaigners, for want of a better word, or writers who prioritise issue of free speech, we spend most of our time defending free speech for ideas we don't want to hear. Yeah. You know, it is only the extreme and the out there uh, ideas that need defending on the grounds of free speech. Um, the mainstream and the mediocre can look after itself. So that's the first one. And a subsection of that is really important to, to remember that this is turning history on its head to suggest that free speech is somehow a problem for oppressed and marginalised groups. Mm -hmm. Free speech has been the absolute centre of every struggle for liberation by anybody anywhere mm -hmm. in the world. Without the struggle for free speech, there would be no national liberation movements, no women's liberation movements, no gay liberation movements, no anti-racist movements. Frederick Douglass, the great ex-slave and anti-slavery campaigner in America, made the point that free speech is the absolute key to the struggle against slavery. Yeah. That with freedom of speech, slavery wouldn't have lasted five years in the southern states of America. You know, he understood that, that it was the central thing. So if you want to stand for liberation and equality in society, then free speech will be the centre of your, of your demand. And stop trying to make excuses and qualifications for why free speech is, is wrong in certain circumstances or for certain people. You've got to defend it as a universal right. And if we do, we'll all be better off for that. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's an incredibly important point about the, the power of freedom of speech precisely for the most vulnerable, marginalized people in society. It's how they have liberated themselves historically. So there's been a complete transformation in how that idea is understood I wanted to go back a little bit more in time, even before Frederick Douglass's time. Uh, you wrote for Spite about Rushdie being a, a heretical hero and, and part of a long line of people who have dared to stand up against orthodoxies, to, to withstand accusations of blasphemy. And also, the, I think the most admirable thing about what Rushdie has done is that he has made freedom of speech one of his core beliefs. Absolutely. In, in that very time, in that very period that he was under attack, he didn't skulk away and defend his book only. When I said before that we spend most of our time defending people we don't listen to, I don't include Rushdie yeah. in that. <laughs> he is, he's, he's genuinely a hero of free speech. My favourite thing that anybody said this week was when his son said that free speech is life. Yeah, absolutely. Rushdie, yeah. That free speech is life itself. That's yeah. what his whole life is about. And I think that's a, you know... My God, how many people are there in public life that are prepared to stand up and say that today? Yeah, absolutely. No, I really agree. But just going back a little bit more in relation to the Spike piece you wrote about, um, which is headlined, without blasphemy, the West would have no free speech. 
So it, it, just remind us how important the the struggle of people to blaspheme against orthodoxies or to stand up against uh, the core beliefs of society. How how central was that to the development of freedom of speech over the past few hundred years in terms of the relative freedom of speech that we enjoy today and how that came about? Completely central, Brendan. Today, obviously, you know, we look at the Russia thing and it always appears that religion is the enemy of, of free speech. It's, it's the problem when we're dealing with free speech. It's important to remember that when free speech actually emerged in its modern form four or five hundred years ago as, as an issue in Western society, the demand was for religious freedom, for the freedom to think and write and speak and worship as you saw fit, the Protestant reaction against the Catholic Church, the demand to be able to publish a Bible in your own language and read it yourself rather than being told by a priest what it said, was a central demand of, of the Protestant Reformation uh, and was a de- demand for freedom of thought, conscience and speech. And, you know, people like Tyndall were burnt at the stake for uh, daring to translate the Bible into English. Only a few years before, by the way, it became uh, state policy to have a Bible in every yeah. church, which is sign that over history today's blasphemy becomes tomorrow's orthodoxy but people standing up and fighting for blasphemy for the right to question the orthodoxies of society for the right to be a heretic has been central to the struggle for freedom of speech and i think i made the point there that um if you go back to the meaning of heresy that it was defined by an early christian leader in greek that he said his views were orthodox but from the greek for right belief and his opponents views were heresy from the Greek for choice of belief. Yeah. <laughs> so choosing what you believe, that is the that is the origins of the word heresy. Mm. And that's what being a heretic has always meant, standing up for your freedom to think and write as you as you see fit. So one of the great heretics of the of the uh, Enlightenment, Spinoza, mm. who was thrown out of the Jewish community in Amsterdam as a as a blasphemer, I think captured that issue perfectly when he said that in a free state, any man, and we would obviously add any woman or anybody else, may think what he likes and say what he thinks. And that blasphemy, fighting for that blasphemy in central struggle for free speech over the last four or 500 years, first of all against uh, religion and, and, and state control of the printing press, and today against uh, the kind of modern blasphemy laws that we've been discussing in terms of hate speech and the right to question identity politics, as well as Islam. Yeah. And I wanted to come on to that in terms of the new orthodoxies and yeah. the new accusations of blasphemy uh, which obviously the language has changed. No one would openly describe their political belief as an orthodoxy that you mustn't question. They'd use other language. No, uh, no one would accuse you of blasphemy, but they might accuse you of hate speech or erasing people or problematic thought. That's a favorite word too. So the language has changed, but the instinct is the same, which is to shut down questioning of certain ideas. But of course, the ideas now tend to be identitarian ones. The trans one is central to a lot of this. And it's very interesting how phrases like trans women are women are often repeated as almost as a religious mantra that they never explained. It's just repeated. And our only role is to repeat them back in a dutiful fashion rather than to choose our own belief, which is to say that it's not true. So often when you raise questions like this and make comparisons, so I made a comparison between uh, Salman Rushdie and JK Rowling in the sense that both have been subjected to death threats. Both have been had their books burned in very different contexts. Um, both have been demonised by sections of the liberal, supposedly liberal establishment for having wrong think or for being offensive. And of course, the thing that said against me is that um, how can you compare these two things? Salman Rushdie's been in hiding for years. He's now been stabbed. 
And of course, the level of threat is very, very different. And what Salman Rushdie has experienced is different to what any other modern writer has experienced. And no one would deny that. But there is a commonality, isn't there, between, or I guess it's another expression of the crashing together of that Islamist intolerance with identity politics, which means that they do sound creepily similar. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as we've said, there is a difference between Islamist extremists who want to kill you for free yeah. speech and yeah. cultural warriors who just want to cancel you. There is a difference. But, you know, one way you lose you, you can lose your life. The other way you can lose your livelihood, mm-hmm. your your career, your, your future prospect and your voice in public. Um, and I think it was absolutely, to use a rather hackneyed phrase, no coincidence that J.K. Rowling yeah. also received a, a death threat this week apparently from someone of Islamist leanings, uh, in response to her support for Rushdie when saying it to her, you're next. Why would an Islamist be after J.K. Mm-hmm. Rowling? What do they care about the trans debate? And it's that it's almost like an unconscious merging of those yeah. uh, wishes to say, you can't say that. That's basically the, the, the culture we're dealing with in, in, in different forms and different positions in different language. What's being said is, you can't say that. And it's a h- terribly unholy alliance between uh, Islamists and identitarians, which some of them uh, want to use violence and others just want to use uh, the blue censor's pen. But this effect on free speech is pernicious of that alliance. And as we talked about before, the cowardice and the anti-free speech culture in the West undoubtedly gives the green light to those who want to take it further and attack someone. If you say your speech is the equivalent of violence, then why shouldn't someone conclude that it's legitimate to use violence to stop them speaking? Absolutely. Yeah. And the common phrase these days is that if you express a certain idea, you're erasing my identity and it's an act of structural violence against my identity. And you feed into this constant notion that words are attacking me and therefore yeah. I have the right to attack back. This is why, you know, when, when I wrote that editorial 30 odd years ago, the right to be offensive, that, that's been yeah. such a key element of everything I've written and said ever since, because the right to be offensive or what would in different circumstances be called the right to blaspheme. If we don't have that, we don't have free speech. Yeah. If we only allow to say things that won't offend somebody, won't upset anybody, then we might as well all keep our mouths shut because yeah. free speech is completely meaningless. Yeah, absolutely. And and that, that other chilling phrase I find is um, free speech has consequences. Now, in a sense, it's perfectly logical. Free speech should have the consequence of stirring up discussion, maybe sometimes changing the world, making people think differently. But if we're talking about free speech having the consequence of you losing your job, or losing your life, then that's not consequence, that's that's punishment. And I've often thought that one thing that binds together the kind of woke mob and, and the more violent Islamist mob is this idea that free speech has consequences. And I'm sure the Charlie Hebdo killers had that in their mind, you know, here come your consequences. This is what we're yeah. going to do to you as a consequence of you uh, exercising your freedom of speech. It's a, it's a very chilling phrase when you look at the context in which it's typically used. Absolutely. You know, if you say that, there's going to be a serious payback for it. Yeah, These people are both wings of something in my book, Trigger Warning, that I described as that we live in the age of the reverse Voltaire's. If you take Voltaire's yeah. classic phrase, or the phrase that's attributed to him by his biographer, I disagree with what, what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. The reverse, the reverse Voltaire's is, I disagree with what you say, I hate what you say, <laughs> and I will fight to the death of free speech for my right to stop you saying it. Yeah, You tell me on where on that basis there is a disagreement between the Islamist and the identitarian wings of the anti-free speech movement. They're all in the same boat, whether they like to admit it or not. And 
more often on a day-to-day basis, it's the identitarian, the woke culture warriors that we're fighting against in our struggle for free speech. And the Islamists come in once in a while to you know, take advantage of the situation yeah. that they've created. I think it's, it's time, Brendan, we've got to get angry about this. Never mind all this. You've written brilliantly, eloquently about this problem of the whole Islamist thing about don't look back in anger. It's time to get angry about this, about mm-hmm. what's being done to free speech in our societies, not only by a handful of, of Islamists, but by a far more powerful, cowardly, anti-free speech section of our liberal establishment. And it's time for the blasphemers of the world to unite yeah. in, the struggle, in support of struggle by heretical free speech heroes like Salman Rushdie. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I was thinking the other day that it's time to up the ante, but then I thought, hold on, the other side has already upped the ante quite dramatically, yeah. especially with this attack. And it's time for for those of us who believe in freedom to respond uh, by upping the ante in our way too, in terms of the defense that we put forward of this crucial liberty. Mick, I've got just two more questions for you. The first is about the response in the UK to what ha- happened to Rushdie, which I just found to be so limp and lame and already fizzling out. And you said earlier that there is no uh, Je suis Salmon movement and so on, which is true. What is striking though, is that the response in France has been far more firm. And uh, if you look at President Macron's response to the stabbing, it was a a very solid, firm, clear response, talking about how Salmon Rushdie has always stood up against the forces of barbarism and obscurantism. Lots of French intellectuals who've always had a stronger critical line on problems to do with Islamist thinking. Lots of French intellectuals came out very strongly and said, we have to stand with freedom of speech against Islamist terror and Islamist uh, intolerance. In the UK, the response was far more weak. Uh, Even Boris Johnson's response, which did mention freedom of speech, was a bit wet, hasn't really been followed up particularly well. Keir Starmer took I don't know, 24 hours or something to respond, which is pretty extraordinary, considering that Salman Rushdie is not born in Britain, but he's a British citizen and a British knight of the realm. How do you explain the weakness of the response in Britain too? Is it because there's a fear that people will accuse you of being part of a culture war if you talk about issues like this, or people will accuse you of offending the Muslim community? Why is there that reluctance here in particular to take a really firm line along the lines that we've just been talking about. Yeah, it's remarkable. Uh, It's been going on for a long time and getting worse and worse. The absolute cowardice in the liberal establishment in Britain of being seen to offend Islam, of being seen to offend anybody with their uh, opinions, and the reluctance to take a stand. It's just this kind of blancmange-like mess that the British political establishment has demonstrated itself to be, far more starkly, actually, as you say, than the, even than in, than, in, than in other parts of the West. There was a remarkable statement by Angela Rayner, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, who I think was the first Labour leader to tweet in response to the Rushdie uh, affair, who said, um, condemned the attack. She said, this violence is an attack on free speech and can never be the answer. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was a very interestingly strange statement to make. Never be the answer to what? Yeah. What's the question? How do we constrain offensive free speech? I mean, you know, it's just yeah. the wrong thing to say, completely yeah. the wrong response to it, completely taking the wrong side of the argument. There was an article published on one of the main uh, news sites almost as soon as the attack had happened, headlined, why is Salman Rushdie so controversial? Mm-hmm. As if Rushdie was the problem mm-hmm. and the issue here. And this is how far we've gone down this slope of this terror of, of overstepping a mark. So the British establishment has been very weak on this question for a long time by uh, by Western standards, uh, and it's getting worse and worse. And there's now 
kind of revealing itself, despite all of its pretensions to be, you know, Britain is the is the home of free speech and democracy, of which there's much historical truth in that. But today, it's in, it seems to be the opposite to me in Western standards, and uh, it's it's a, a real weak sister when it comes to standing up for the principles that our society is supposed to have been built on. Okay, so my final question is is on those principles that our society is supposed to be built on, and why they're important. Now, in some ways, this feels like a very obvious question, I guess, to to you and I, because we've been writing about freedom of speech for a very long time and talking about it for a long time as well. But I did want to ask you just to say something on why freedom of speech is important. Uh, You touched on it earlier, of course, in relation to uh, the use of freedom of speech, the deployment of freedom of speech as a means of liberating oneself from tyranny and making the case for one's own freedom. But it does strike me that there are younger generations in particular who probably have never been exposed to the argument for why freedom of speech is such an important principle in a civilized society. I noticed that lots of people are sharing great quotes from Salman Rushdie over the past week. One of my favorites is, the moment you declare a set of ideas to be immune from criticism, satire, derision, or contempt, freedom of thought becomes impossible. And that is so true, you know, and all the good stuff is in there, not only criticism, but also contempt i.e. causing offence, ridicule, mockery. So there are people in society, Salman and Rushdie is a chief among them, who understand uh, the importance of freedom of thought and freedom of speech. But isn't it worth just reiterating that case afresh all the time so that people remember why this freedom should never be curtailed, whether by crazed men with knives or governments with laws or mobs online. I think that's that's really important, Brendan. I mean, when I wrote uh, Trigger Warning, I wrote a chapter in there called, you know, a few things we've got about free speech, mm. which was that, um, first of all, it has to be free. And secondly, it's speech and shouldn't be confused with, with violence. And those kind of seemingly obvious principles, we do have to keep rep- and, uh, repeating. And the third reason, uh, we, the third thing we remember about it is it's the most important liberty on which all others stand. And I think it is true that a lot of young people don't understand that, but it isn't because they're some kind of you know new generation of, of uh, illiberal reactionaries. It's because they've hardly ever heard the argument for yeah. freedom of speech. Yeah. And in my experience, not only in Britain, but uh, recently in, in Hungary and Finland and other European countries, and I'm sure you've experienced the same thing, when you go and have an argument with people about why free speech is important, you can see the scales fall from half of their people's young people's eyes and they become very excited by it so i think we've got to keep reiterating that free speech is the lifeblood of democracy if you do not have the right to argue for what you believe then what does democracy mean where is the choice that we're that we're making Uh, free speech is even more fundamentally than that it's the basis of human autonomy of our status as individuals who can think for ourselves as spinoza says think what we like and say what we think Uh, that's the whole basis of being a free individual in a society. And if you don't have that, then you are not a free human in its sense. And in a practical sense, as we've already talked about, free speech is absolutely fundamental to every struggle for equality, for freedom, for liberation. All the things which young people would say they really believe in, if they're not prepared to stand up for free speech, the absolute freedom of speech, then none of those struggles are can be won. And uh, we cannot live in a free and equal society where people can't think what they like and say what they think. The struggle for free speech has always been central to struggle for free society in the West. And even more now, when such a fundamental freedom on which everything else that in our lives depends is at risk, when there is a knife at the throat of free speech, you know, not only in Putin's Russia or the Afghanistan under the Taliban, but in our supposedly free Western societies, as the attack on Salman Rushdie has 
dramatically and terribly illustrate. McHugh, thank you very much. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.